Welcome to Multi New Media. I am Chase Raz, and you are able to introduce myself. Well, that's that's good. You were just saying you were drinking what? What, what were you drinking? Oh, I'm drinking bourbon. Bourbon. That oh. that's okay. It's just my drink of choice. That's I'm a Chris. drink. That's a I'm drink a of the day. I'm a developer, a gamer, and a um, partaker of delicious beverages. Oh well, I'm I'm Chase. I'm an educator, corporate trainer, and uh, host of the show. And um, um, I like green tea. No, uh-huh. yeah. I've been into Buddhism recently. Don't hate. You ever have you ever read koans? Yes. Um. And in fact, um, there's a number of Buddhist inspired coding lessons and coding blogs that that try to demonstrate good programming practices through koans. Wow, that's actually pretty interesting. Um, if you think of any of those, let me know, and we'll put them in the show notes or, um, or on the links yeah, page. Yeah, I already found one. It's one oh. I actually read. It's it's kind of interesting. It's called The Codeless Code. I'm glad you found that because one thing that absolutely bugs me is when you listen to a show and they start with a bunch of pointless banter, and that is exactly what I started with today and dragged you into. So thanks for saving that one. Um, no, 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 no. I, I don't don't take my pointless banter from me. It, it, it's enjoyable, you know. Some people want to get down to business, and some people like to 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 ease into it. Did you just describe a mullet? <laughs> no, no, I did not. <laughs> the codeless code. You, I think you've told me about this before, and I didn't pay any attention because I, I often don't a, pay attention to what you say. Well, that's your own fault. Probably. I actually have a programmer friend who's a coworker who uh, goes to the. Buddhist temple in, in, in Florida, um, in Tampa here, and I've ref- I showed him this, and he loved it. it. It's really interesting reading through some of them and um, just seeing how they apply to good co-design and good good development. I'm looking practice. for a short one. In case somebody doesn't know what a koan, they're the K-O-A-N. They're very short Buddhist stories that are supposed you know they're supposed to help you towards enlightenment, specifically Zen Buddhism, not Mahayana, which is more philosophical. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. There and they're they're typically short stories, sometimes only you know poem length and size. We're talking like a limerick almost, and some of them are actual stories. But the idea is they're supposed to impart some knowledge that's beyond intelligence, uh, and that makes them very damn difficult to understand because we we think about things um, intellectually and philosophically, and you can't. Come on, do man! That. It's just like the Matrix with the kid going. You, you just have to realize there is no spoon. There is no spoon. Yeah. There is no spoon. That that really could be a 20th century koan. That's the type of stuff we're talking about. Huh. So that's, and if you haven't seen The Matrix yet, sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> if you haven't seen The Matrix yet, you probably have no interest in seeing The Matrix. But the codeless code, um, we're not affiliated with them, I guess. You're you're not, are you? You don't do you know these no, people? No, you I just I, found this. No, I I scour the web for interesting things. I, huh. I look at blogs and RSS feeds. I, I have articles that are by people that collect links and send out link collections daily or weekly to interesting things. And so I you know, try to find really good resources for me. So like Smashing Magazine um, for like design stuff. You know, you'll, you'll use Stack Overflow as like a, a coding uh, you know, question and answer place. This is just something I, I came across and I liked and yeah. I thought it was cool. I do I like this. Him. I do like this. Um, all right. So one of the reasons I started with a little bit of banter is because, and this seems to be a trend on the show recently, um, 
I'm I'm going to take more of a, a probably a backseat role on the topic today. And um, Chris, you had an idea of something to go over that's that's um, semi-topical, right? It's it's persistently topical, no matter when somebody's listening to this show. And um, so let me let me hand it over to you, and you can try to explain to me what it is, and we'll see if I'm capable of understanding. Okay. Well, we were having a conversation the other day, and you know, you were talking about how it was important to know your OS and, and, you know, the OS was really important. And it, this is something that goes around a lot, but a lot of businesses are moving to a place where it's all web-based. And yeah. do you really care about what your OS is? Well, and, um, and moving forward, is browser-based good enough? And one of the things I was saying that about is, you know, and I just had a conversation with a student about this very thing, you know, his um, uh, the university I teach at, we use MacBooks as the primary computers for most uh, students. I love those as development machines. They're great, uh, we, especially we, with like know, VMware or virtual box this, the or school, something. The school actually doesn't use those for development. They give them Windows uh, laptops for that. But on the business wow. side, we use MacBooks. And um, his MacBook crapped out like two months before graduation. And he was asking advice on whether he should get a Surface Pro 3 or, or a MacBook Air or this, that, or the other. And price was a consideration and you know i finally just looked at him i said you've been working in osx for three or four years now um how easy is it going to be for you as a business person to switch your workflow is all of the software available on windows if you switch back to windows is the workflow the same are the software titles laid out the same and so from a business perspective that's the entry point i take but i understand that on the technical side it, there's a drastically different argument um, uh, you know, that, that takes place, that the OS is almost marginalized, right? Well, it, it's also the way things have been changing with the design of, like, web apps moving forward. Office 365, you can use Word and Excel online mm -hmm. and edit things. You've got Chromebooks that really never had, you know, local storage. Everything is web-based. You've got... Uh, web-based photo editors, uh, databases, file storage, um, word processing, ex databases, uh, tables, yeah, everything you need. Um, and, you know, it was just a conversation point where, yes, you can find similar software on different platforms, and, and yeah, um, you might care, uh, but that's that's desktop. That that's dealing with users. If you take a step back and look at like server side, you know, ignoring Exchange, for instance, right. or a specific server technology like that, or Active Directory, um, they do have cloud-based stuff for for that. So if you were, but if you're doing like web hosts, um, other than needing like a specific .NET technology, which Microsoft is working hard to remove the need for Windows to write .NET web servers. Yeah, and we talked about that a few shows ago. Right. The, the new .NET stuff is Mac and Linux compatible. So if you can write code... Episode 10, I believe. Yeah. If you can write code, and you can put it on a Mac, Windows, or Linux server, and it doesn't really matter, your code will run the same way. If you can put web pages and PDFs and, and documents for people to... and images for people to look at and download, and it doesn't really matter the OS because um, it's just being served from the cloud um, how important is the OS now if it becomes a, a part of the fabric of the internet where you're deploying a site or a service 
and you know maybe you're using uh, a virtual machine where you know it doesn't really matter what it is but it's just there to serve up files or serve up a you know a, an ajax call to return some json data or return a file the reliance on that os becomes you know much less so for the end user, we're, we're still talking about workflows and what somebody's trained. To now the use. end user, I can see OS dependence. Right. Like I'm not going to say that OS doesn't matter for the end user. I'm saying that for smaller businesses, that money's the factor. You know, they might not buy Office. They might just go with web-based products. They might not buy um, an OS. You know, they might get some commodity hardware and put Linux on it and just use web browsers. They might buy cheap Chromebooks. I don't know. But for enterprise, typically, yeah, it, they're pretty much locked into Windows. They're pretty much locked into Office. I, that is kind of a standard, I think, in a lot of places. Yeah, and it seems to be these days that people, um, both on the business side and even in the technical side, are having some trouble um, deciding. And, and I know I get hit with this problem uh, quite frequently, frequently as well, deciding in what case do I need to use what technology, right? So in what case do I need to deploy an instance of, let's say, Linux and then run a uh, platform stack on top of it in order to get some web service running? And in what situation is good old-fashioned web hosting enough and I can just slap a few scripts together? And it seems like we're moving much more towards the process of deploying an operating system and framework under every single application that you're running and it's it's custom built for that it's got its so own supported stack you're, you're kind of moving the way of of newer technologies like like docker and and really optimize tiny virtual machines it sounds like yeah um, but you know well and, and it's it's just the logical conclusion of the business direction things have been going for years so, so why 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 is it going that way, right? Why is it not good enough to cost. take a well? No, let me frame it in this way. So if I want to run, let's say, um, an e-commerce site or a discussion forum online, you know, the the old days we'd get web hosting and we'd slap some scripts on there and we'd run a customization script and and well, presto change you're done. You would sign up for web hosting, and so there'd be one server, or there there might be multiple servers, but you would be on a server, and they would just make you an account mm-hmm. on that machine, and you would. Put some stuff in, in your directory, and it would serve up your website. Right. The issue is there might be um, hundreds, thousands of users. Always oversold. Servers. Yeah, always uh, hosting is typically right. always oversold. Right. So your site can very much suffer because of another user or because of someone else in the box. Or if that site goes down, you're, you're, you might be DOA, and you have to wait for them to restore it from backup. So... The other option was renting a server from them, so it's your server, your uh, de- IP, which would be dedicated hosting. Dedicated hosting, which is very expensive, or sometimes there's colo, yeah, colocation. You, you have your server and you give it to them to host. Correct, and these are these are really the traditional models. So if you're familiar yeah. with web hosting, you know we're talking about virtual or shared hosting, which is where you're slapped in with hundreds or thousands of other people. That you have dedicated, which is where you are essentially renting a server or multiple servers, and then co-location, where you are purchasing a server and ho- having it hosted at a data facility. Yep, you have restated what I just said. No, I, yeah, I, I added <laughs> names to them. I added so, names. So, I add some value, right? So that was. I mean, they still do those things today. Did you just grunt at me saying I add some value to it? 
<laughs> I had a vision of Galaxy Quest where the captain asks the computer a question and the computer kind of <laughs> looks at him, and then the you know the the first mate the 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 female restates the question the exact same way and the computer responds. I just was like, oh <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I know that feeling very well. Right. So that they still do those things today, but what started happening many years ago with the introduction of like hypervisors was this idea that you can get more performance out of your hardware and you can have more reliability by virtualizing it. Now, and hold so, on a second. Hold on a second. Most of our business people, most of our marketers, most of our educators, if they're not already in the tech field, are scratching their heads going, hypervisor. Yeah, um, and let me explain. Okay. So, a typical machine, you turn it on, your operating system loads up, and you interact directly with that operating system. And you get full access to that machine. So, what they came out with you know, many, many years ago, but it's been very commercialized and optimized since then, is the hypervisor. So, when you turn on the machine, it loads a really thin, tiny OS, essentially, called the hypervisor. And it sits right on the metal, and it essentially um, acts as an interface between operating systems and the machine. So the hypervisor is sitting there running, and you can say, "Hey, I want to start a, a you know, I want to create a virtual machine. Uh, you know, I want to create a, a Windows server on this box." And so you allocate it so much memory, and you allocate it so many processors. And you can say, hey, here's where the disk is. And so when you tell the hypervisor to turn that on, it will read and write to this file and pretend it's a disk. And it will allow that Windows machine to run as a process, but think it's running on a real piece of hardware. And so because there's that thin hypervisor in between Windows and the real machine, there is a little bit of a performance loss if you were doing nothing but highly intensive CPU stuff, like about 10 to 15%. But the real reality is it's very, very rare that you have your server maxed out. Right. You're we not going to be. We want our servers maxed out. Yeah. We you, want our servers at like at most 60 or 80%. You're usually. going to be handling requests. If you're handling requests nonstop every right. single millisecond, you've, you need more servers. Right. So, and what will happen is there'll be a little bit of a bump in CPU as it's doing something, and then they'll probably switch over to doing I.O., so writing to the file or writing to the network. And so by having uh, a hypervisor, so for instance, there's Zen, there's Hyper-V by Microsoft, there's VMware, so ESX, VM, VMware, um, you can have three, four, five, six, eight machines running on that one host that one piece of hardware and so when one might be busy processing data and the CPU's high on two of the four processors the other ones are doing IO requests from the network and writing stuff out to the disk so they are also uh, more portable than before so uh, what a lot of the hypervisors allow is they allow multiple hosts to work together so you might have a virtual machine running on um, hardware A and the hypervisor can detect oh my drive is failing or I'm seeing bad memory on machine A and it can transfer across the network to machine B and keep running 
just a question, and and I'm not, and, a- and, and and that's you know DR, that's disaster recovery stuff. That's, yeah. But but it allows that type of stuff to happen. You don't have to go and pull drives and shut down a machine and build a new one. You just click a button and it's running on a different piece of hardware. Uh, yeah, and here's my question, and I'm not baiting this question. I, so, for full transparency, I actually do not know the answer to what I'm asking. I'm actually looking for some clarification. The um, when you're talking about the the data recovery and and you can move this, that's actually moving this VHD file. Is is, well, is that right? The the virtual well, hard drive. Okay, so typically, uh, uh, we're we're kind of getting a little off topic, and we're we're diving kind of deep into virtualized servers. But oh, okay, typically. Um, and the setups I've seen and the setups I've run, uh, the the VM hosts, which is what the, the, the hardware servers are called, typically have like six, eight cores, maybe more, 12. They have tons of processors. They have tons of memory, like 96, 128 gigs of memory, just tons. They have like no disk space because those servers are hooked up to a SAN, storage-attached network. So they're hooked up either fiber channel or iSCSI, which are uh, just ways to connect stuff. But it's extremely fast, um, much faster than you know, like it's on the speed of like your solid state drive or, or like a really really fast SATA drive. It, it is a big server, essentially a server of itself, but it will have like twelve to twenty or thirty drives in this mm-hmm. one SAN device, right. and the disks are striped and rated and so they have really fast performance so and it can handle drive failures so you so you have this big SAN that has 20 30 drives you have terabytes of storage on it and it can handle drive failures and has redundancy inside of itself and so you have three or four servers that have tons of storage or tons of processing power and memory but no storage so it reads and writes from the SAN all the disk access stuff and it's just executing the the instructions and having state in memory. Okay. So, so when the DR event happens, like, oh, I'm seeing some bad memory, or my network is, or you know, my something's failing. All it needs to transfer over is the state. Like, what's the value of the like the registers in the processor, and what's the the memory dump, and it transfers it to the other one, and it can keep running because it can open the file that's on the SAN and just keep executing. Like nothing happened. So back over to what the average user needs to know. It's sort of painting the picture of you don't really have a need for a dedicated server anymore. I mean, sometimes maybe you do. No, you don't. And what's awesome, well, I mean, okay, there are special, special cases where they recommend bare metal. So certain database servers, they want it to be, you know, extremely high performance, extremely fast IO. They don't want any delays or possible latencies. But I've run many database servers on on VMs and it's it's not been an issue. But the other thing VMs give you that, you know, like a normal server or a normal OS won't let you do is because it sits outside the machine, you can snapshot it. You can pause it. Hey, we're going to try doing updates tonight. Let's take a snapshot of the machine before we do the updates. Apply all the updates if something happens, if we have a failure in our upgrade, we can revert back to before we did anything. That's that's pretty nice. So going back to the the hosting conversation, then what yes. is it? What is it that people need to do? Uh, you know, if somebody's well, running a small business or mid sized business, well, well, this goes back to th- that was the setup. Okay. For. Okay. Um, so what, some of the things that that we're starting to see and that have evolved out of this 
this VMware and and virtualized server idea is, um, you know, that is so when we need to make a new server, we can usually have a new server ready to go in about thirty minutes. Like in the old days, if you needed a new server, two weeks maybe. You know, you have to allocate the hardware, get it shipped in, get it assembled, put it in your rack, rewire things, uh, initialize all the hardware, set it up. Nowadays, you click a button, you have a server instantiated. You can use like a template from like another server you already have, or you can just use a disk image and start installing Windows and get it patched and you're up and running. So, you know, we've now taken from making a new server takes two weeks to making a new server takes 30 minutes to an hour. They've gone farther with this now. So Microsoft with Azure and AWS, you know, uh, Amazon with AWS a little bit. When you want to maybe start a new site, they'll spin up a brand new server. And when you deploy your code, it, I don't know if it's on a server. I don't know if it's on an instance. It doesn't really matter anymore. I push my code up to the cloud and it's running on something. It's probably a VM. It might be shared. I don't know. But I know that my my um, project and my website is isolated from anybody else. So it's probably on its own little VM. But it, it takes like five minutes. Like they, they spin up something, they, they copy in my code, and it starts running. Yeah, I've gone through the configuration for a few um, uh, Linux distros like um, like Amazon's, um, just their, yeah. their plain Amazon Linux Uh you know, five minutes in the configuration is done and ready to go, and you can um, you can go ahead and uh, tone that in if you want, or however else you want to connect. Right. So, um, so if I was just hoping static, you know, hosting static files, it really wouldn't matter if it was Linux or or Windows for for serving some static files. But you know, we don't have to have a new server. We don't have to go through all this headache. We cl- click a couple buttons, and boom, I have something running out in the cloud on some probably a high-end machine somewhere hooked up to a big data pipe. So, you know, I looked at, I was looking at some pre-configured software the other day. And again, in the past, uh, my workflow would have been, okay, I'm going to download these files. I'm going to upload them and store them on my server. I'll run the config. I'll set all these config files and then I'll install a template, right? I think everybody knows that old process. But now um, the, the installation instructions were go set up an instance um, do this particular thing in Linux. Uh, get the distro or, or get the distribution. Get the um, get the Docker for this thing. And my question is, uh, you know, is this process kind of moving some people out of being able to do their own tech, or is it helping people to be able to do whatever it is they want? I'm not I'm not sure if this is going to be easier for the average end user who's not a tech expert. Well, yeah, Docker's brand new, and it's been out. <sighs> Maybe a year or two. I don't. I don't know. But it's definitely new. So yeah, the old way of packaging a lot of stuff would be downloading the files and adding it in my own thing and then putting it on my site. Mm-hmm. So one of the things Docker does is um, instead of VM hosts, where you're talking about uh, a machine running on top of this hypervisor and hardware. Docker kind of does that, but on top of your normal OS. So if if you say like Docker run and you give it a Docker file and the Docker file says Ubuntu Linux in there, 
it's going to download from the you know the the library of Docker files out there. It's going to find the Ubuntu Linux uh, image, download it, and start running it. So what this allows people to do is they could package up. Oh, I want a mail server, and, and right. you know all I need to really give it is my domain name, and it'll just start running. Or I want um, a web server, and I give it the zip file of my my code and Apache and everything on that side is already configured, ready to go. Uh, it's updated. It's it's configured properly. Um, oh, we need to scale. So I wanna I wanna run this website on twenty servers, and I want it set up the exact same way on all twenty servers. I've got this one Docker file that has all the configuration and setup I need. I just run the command on twenty servers, and it's done. It, it, it downloads it, configures it, sets it up, and starts it running. But it's, so it seems like it's making things a little bit easier for, like you said, scalability, but also for. Um, creating something without having to have as much technical knowledge. But um, I, I've sort of noticed that when I go in and I'm dealing with the configuration for something that's using Docker, or that's that's even just some of these cloud instances, like you know the 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 marketplace for AWS. Uh, you can get this software, that software. You can get WordPress installed. Well, then it's putting the operating system on, and then it's putting the software stack that's typically running, you know, Apache for the web server or so on and so forth. To, to me, that just seems more complex. Am I thinking about this the wrong way? I mean, it just seems harder to deal with. Kind of. What the advantage is that you don't realize right off the bat, and, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm talking about Docker to a bunch of people that probably don't know what it is, but and there how- are multiple steps in the, the Docker file. And, you know, like you have the base image and then a bunch of configuration steps. Well, each step is snapshotted. Each step is kind of like, essentially like checked in, so that it 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 can go to that it can go back to that single point at any time. So when you say I'm going to use Linux and then I'm going to put on a web server and then I'm going to configure the web server and I'm going to set up an FTP server, it it remembers each of those steps. So if you change it and say I don't want to set up an FTP server, I want to set up a mail server, it can go. Well, I already have the Linux machine and I've already set up. Apache, and I've already done this. I'm just going to take that version that ended with me configuring the web server, and I'm going to use that to, to set up the mail server. So it doesn't have to go out and redo everything every time. It, it can it, it allows reuse, and it allows for you to do the same thing the same way in multiple places every time. Okay, so let's so take let, it. It helps take- remove the human element a little bit, and, and automation and deployment and configuration is amazing as a developer and as a system admin and as anybody delivering software. All right, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and look at a little bit of the um, the practical side of what this is going to look like for people who are de- who are adopting these types of uh, cloud technologies and Docker's and and other such things.
To continue our conversation, we were talking about quite a few um, pretty in-depth technologies, Chris, before we went uh, on the short break there. As I want to do. (laughs) I like talking about my tech. Hey, that's good. There are some people out there who are scratching their heads going, I have no idea what these guys are talking about. I'm one of them. And uh, there are other people who are like, yeah, keep keep going down this path. It's great. But so if we're going back to the practical side of things a little bit more and saying we're looking from maybe a somewhat IT aspect, but, you know, maybe our first core job is not IT and it's not maybe what we went and got specially trained in. The old process that I was talking about before, people are probably still very familiar with, all right, here's the hosting I have. Here's what type of languages I can run. Here's how much bandwidth and this, that, and the other I have. And so our workflow is to go out and say, I need an email server that can work on my dedicated machine. And it needs mm-hmm. to run on this particular version of Linux. And it needs to have uh, work with this other thing. right? Or I want to... I want to put an e-commerce site on my uh, uh, or an e-commerce section on my website. So I'm going to get some open source software and it needs to run this other language and it needs to run on this particular server type. We're used to doing that, I think. But now it looks like the future may be, all right, my e-commerce site, it's going to stand on its own platform stack. And my email server will stand on its own platform stack. And my discussion forums stand on their own platform stack. Yes, I, um, you know, that's definitely something that people have started to migrate to. Uh, I know that in a number of businesses I've worked at, there was pretty much a server for every function. Like, you know, we had a dedicated file server. It didn't share aspects with anything else, and it just, it had its own virtual machine. And there's a virtual machine for this, and a virtual machine for that. And you don't have to buy that much hardware to be able to do that. And it lets you have some independence. Oh, I want to backup and restore that one server. Or I want to do updates on this one, and I don't want to take down mail when I do it. Or, you know, oh, they hacked the website, but they didn't get into anything else because they're on different machines. Now that, you, I mean, you're, I think you're selling it right there. I, I, almost eliminating some of the questions I was going to ask you because... Everything's isolated. Yeah, you're and, creating this great isolation. Yes. I mean, sure. You now have more <laughs> servers to monitor. You now have more things to maybe go out and patch, but um, if you're running, you know this type of stuff, you're going to be looking at network monitoring things. Ideally, you should be aware of what your machines and what your network's doing. You should be looking at some sort of um, either multi-server management capability to do updates, or you, you should be, you know, exploring those options because you can do more with less. You can do more with less hardware. You can do more with less uh, servers and you do more with less, you know, people. You don't have to expand out that many server admins usually. Have you ever experienced um, difficulty maybe yourself or someone you've worked with or just seen um, some of your your uh, clients or, or businesses you've worked for uh, to where they're using this system of everything standing on its own server? Um, we're, we're talking, again, software server here. Um, but they get a little unmanageable because maybe they're using different types of Linux or some some things are using Linux and other things are using Windows. Does that ever become uh, too hard to manage? Well, um, I will say that usually if you have Linux admins, they don't know how to manage Windows. And if you have Windows admins, they don't know how to manage Linux. Or if you have, you know, back in the day, X serves, 
you know, they, they knew how to do Mac and they didn't know how to do anything else. Um, if you're lucky, you'll find someone who can do multiple uh, because, you know, go where the tools tell you, go where the OS is, you know, just learn what you need to learn. But there are people that are resistant to learning. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's not, you know, this. I'm not going to learn that. Right. I mean, we a lot of people do. We, we make preferential judgments sometimes based on what the product is called, right? This mm-hmm. is where marketing comes in. You know, some people listen to something and they hear Microsoft Azure and they say, well, that's a very uncommon color, <laughs> you know? And they think, well, I'm not going to use that service now. Or they hear AWS uh, or from Amazon. it's open source. How am I going to get support? I want to have, I want to buy it from a company so I can have support. Right. Right, those types of common misconceptions of, of course, you can get support with open source, and, and in most cases, in almost all cases. But mm-hmm. if uh, if someone is used to running their hosting, you know, the traditional, what we'll call the traditional way, if I'm going to pay for space, um, is there any advantage, right? If everything's working for them now, should they still go ahead and start thinking about cloud options and virtual servers, or if it's working, just leave it? Are we, are we going to keep the traditional hosting model around? I think the traditional hosting model is not going to go away. It, it's, in a lot of ways, it's a low-cost option for people, you know. They can pay 100 bucks a year and, and have hosting. Um, there are some advantages to the other cloud options, though. So, the way Amazon and Microsoft kind of do it is they look at they call it compute cycles. So, um, and and they, they they will charge you for bandwidth. You know they'll they'll you, you'll get charged for what you use, and usually it's leaving their site. Like yeah. I know with Azure, yeah. If you are if a request comes in, and you are, you know, talking from the web server or the compute, you know, thing to the 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 database. You're not getting charged for that. Yeah, as same far thing, as the bandwidth. Same thing with it, content. If you're if you are doing redundancy, right? Yeah. I want or a content distribution network. So if you ever hear CDN, yeah. folks, that's what that means. Uh, content distribution network. We couldn't exist. Well, we could, but we wouldn't exist with uh, as low latency as we do without one. And w- what that is, right? That when the file is transferred, we don't get charged for that. We only get charged when that file goes out. Or um, when we're doing some type of computation or, or anything like that. Right. So they they have different pricing models. So they'll charge you for, oh, you're doing some business rules and, and you're you know, you're the CPU is consuming these these cycles, you know, that that'll be a charge because the CPU is working so or it, you're sending out all this data out of our data center to the client, they will charge you for that. Or you're storing 50,000 rows, and then you cross into 100,000 rows, you might get charged like a penny for every million rows. Right. So we, we I, I, I don't know. You need to actually check, but it's depending upon your site, depending upon your function, it can be cheaper than $100 a year. To, to go those other routes, depending upon your load or your use. Absolutely, and, and a couple of the cloud services out there have free tiers to where they're like, you know, we yeah. just don't care about this particular volume. Um, one of the one of the things, and I, I don't think we've ever talked about this um, on air or off, is in my class, um, I actually still have a section that covers cloud computing uh, for for business students in the entertainment field. And a lot of these students come to me and they scratch their head and they say, why are we talking about cloud computing? We get it. We know it. And it's that hard sell of saying, you know, all right, as a consumer, we understand the remote access concept. 
And that's what everybody has down. And that's the assumption of, well, this cloud computing thing, it's really just good for remote access. But no, no, there, it, no, it's, no. it's really much more about scalability and multi-tenancy, right? Uh, yeah, so Azure, for instance, if it, you can configure it so that if your website's getting hammered, um, and it can automatically scale out or up. So scaling out means it spins up a new instance, so it essentially will make a new server and automatically load balance between the two and then spin up another server if the load increases and load balance between the three and spin up another server. That's scaling out. And that's really important. So especially if you're doing a targeted campaign, if you say, all right, we're going to hit the United States and Germany, what can load balance across those two continents well, properly? It can do – so that's scaling out. It can add new instances. It can also scale up. I want to go from the low-level free tier that has, you know, X amount of data and X, you know, X amount of CPU and X amount of memory. And when I see this spike, I want to scale up the, the processor. So I want the processor to run faster and maybe to have more memory. They can do both of those things. And, and you know, you can also do the – I'm sure you can do it with Amazon, AWS – uh, geo-located servers. So they have data farms all around the world. And you can have, say, I want to spin up an instance you know, over in Europe, closer to, right. to those users. Yeah, you know, and I think everybody have that. So uh, Microsoft with Azure, Amazon with AWS, Rack, uh, Rack, uh, excuse yeah. me, I can't say their name, Rackspace has a, b a good cloud, IBM, Google. Yeah. Uh, right. We, we end up talking about... Click, 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 yeah. new server, new server, new server. Yeah, Just we like end that. up talking about a couple of the main two um, services or the main two services quite frequently. But uh, don't be fooled. There's a lot more. What about multi-tenancy? You know, one of the things um, that I deliver to my students is that multi-tenancy is important because we can get one centralized version of the code serving a customized version to a large customer base. Is there anything beyond that that I'm missing when I tell them? Uh, that information. Is there anything else that's really important about multi-tenancy, or is it that ability to serve a diverse audience from one core set of code? Well, um, I mean, multi-tenancy is nice. Um, it, it definitely allows code reuse, and you know, it, you you know that everything's operating the same way, and you're just maybe changing the styling or the branding. Um, uh, I mean, there, there's not a ton to add to it. Yeah, it's just not I mean, that big of a deal compared do, to, to scalability. When you're always going multi-tenants, if you're always kind of pushing for multi-tenancy, uh, it leads to you know lack of customization and flexibility because, uh, I'm sorry, that doesn't fit the cookie cutter. Right. You only get as much customization as is built into the customization options, right? That's, exactly. That's the problem with multi-tenancy. Um, yes, and so I... I, I I didn't work at a company, but I interviewed with one, um, and I, I spent the day with them, and they had developed an internal CMS, and so whenever they got a client, they pretty much just pushed, you know, hey, let's just copy our CMS and reskin it for them. Right. I mean, it was pretty much, that was their business model. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of like a scaled-up version of cPanel. And I just, it, yeah, cPanel, it's the same everywhere. And you get what it allows you to have. Yeah, and, and when, when you rebuy your hosting off of a, maybe a second or third tier supplier, all they've done is rebranded and they put their name on it. But you're really buying it from, you know, someone else who has a bigger data center. And, and, and that's kind of the issue that I see there with multi-tenancy is that sometimes it becomes a little bit of a multi-level marketing scheme. 
Um, well, the difference is if if it if the multi-tenancy option that you're looking at works for you, fine. Right. If it fits your business uh, rules, it fits your business flow, and it it does everything you need, fine. But if your business structure is a little different and you feel like you have to shoehorn it in, I would just start from scratch or, or go with a more custom option yeah. that is specific to your business because um, something that can reflect your business and work the way you want it to work and work how you think it should work will be better than learning how to think like this tool wants you to. Yeah, and that's that's a common. And, and there's definitely a balance. Absolutely, absolutely, and and let's be honest, the the companies making the software that are promoting multi tenancy, a lot of it is is to appeal to a consumer base that is is pretty much saying, you know, we want the updates without having to deploy them, without having to worry about the the software stack. We want the updates as soon as they're released, and we want you, the software provider, to be responsible for them. That's one of the true benefits of multi-tenancy, and that becomes a burden of the well, su- the supplier. This is also, you know, spin you know stepping into software as a service. Absolutely, but, yeah. Like like there's, it's almost a different conversation too. It, it is, and because the only last use of multi-tenancy, and and this is you know I hate breaking this to my my entertainment business students is. We talk about multi-tenancy to detract against piracy. Come on. That has no correlation. As long as there's a line-in and a line-out, you've got piracy. Uh, well, no matter how many copies of that file there are. Now, you can do something smart like Microsoft has done and be a gatekeeper and build you know, some kind of a phone home type thing into your software like they do with Office and make sure that your product is still registered. Um, but, yeah, just having multi uh, tenancy in your in your in your um, scheme for software isn't going to be enough to stop piracy. So yeah, that gets off into a whole bunch of other topics. I think yeah. for now we've we've hit a good place to where if somebody out there has really been confused about these terms and they're they're using traditional hosting and they keep and I I know a lot of people like this. Uh, I hear people say, you know, I'm kicking myself. I'm 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 just so I'm so behind the times. I'm not caught up with this cloud thing and I don't know if I should adopt it or not to adopt it and and I think um, these types of conversations help give people a little bit better understanding and and maybe you're missing something maybe you're not you really need to understand first what it is that cloud computing can do for you well I mean you know Xbox One uses I know the cloud computing like um, Titan Swall was the first big one and a bunch of new games like the new Halo coming out they they push some of the processing back to the Microsoft cloud to offload it from the console and to, to unify, you know, handling all the bullets and things. Um, Microsoft has a big push right now to push, you know, get rid of local exchange servers. Why, why, you know, like, why right. are you running an exchange server on your, at your site? Why are, why are you are doing you on-prem? Your... It's so expensive. Yeah. You why have are you to manage it. Directory on-prem. You have to worry about admins, data, access, um, power requirements, storage, hardware, all that they want you to go with like Exchange Online, Office 365, Azure AD. You know, hey, integrate your your authentication in a secure manner with other websites, with with your this, with that. They that's their big push right now to move that server space out into the cloud. Yeah, I just did a corporate training on on um, 
exchange online for a Florida agency. I won't say which one. Um, and it's, Our company uses it. They, uh, yeah, my, uh, I, we use it here at Multi New Media, and, um, and uh, my business uses it. Your company uses it. Um, and, and, and the training I just did, you know, it's kind of like people look at each other like, wow, this is what we can do when we, when this software moves into, um, into, you know, sort of a hosted cloud environment, the types of collaboration that are possible really expand as well. So I think you end up with a better, you know, user experience. And they guarantee like five nines or four nines or some large number of nines. Some, <laughs> yeah, 99.99999% uptime, some ridiculous thing. Right. And these thing. are one of their major data centers usually. So, you know, it's pretty much good bandwidth everywhere. So I think we've sold it, but but again, if if I'm somebody listening to this and I just utterly feel lost, is there a resource that I have available to me that I can start trying to wade through this? Should I just sign up for a free trial on Azure or AWS and give it a go? And 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 if I do and I'm lost, where should I turn? Well, um, you know, you can reach out to definitely Microsoft. They have um, people who are on staff specifically to help you go cloud. Yeah. I'm sure Amazon AWS has similar people whose um, whole job function is to facilitate uh, migrating you know, instances and storage to their services. They hire companies to come out and help you assess and do that. Like they will give you free money to do this. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things. If you are using a dedicated server or a co-located server right now, this is probably something you do need to look into because the cost of paying for the bandwidth and the compute time can a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times end up being significantly less than the, you know, at that point when you're dedicated, you're paying at least $120 a month, right? And that can go up into the thousands depending on what you're doing. Well, yeah, if you're talking about a larger business, they'll assess, yeah, yeah, you like can, they'll look at your power requirements and all those things oh yeah by that by the time that's important you're you're in the million dollar expenditure expenditure yeah. i'm sure right that's yeah that's, that's much more geared towards large business but that's a really good point yeah because you know i'm, I'm maybe assuming more of a smaller mid-sized market but if you're a large business then definitely there are cost efficiencies to be had but from, even small midtown you don't want to have a server in your back room you don't you don't want to have to right you know, pay for a dedicated pipe. Oh, know? yeah. Please don't be doing model. that. Please don't be doing or running your website <laughs> and your discussion form and your email server out of the back room. Um, yeah. I was consulting with a company that, that started trying to do that. They wanted to set up little servers here and there and do tests. And it was just, no. I mean, why why would you do that in this day and age when the entire momentum is in the other direction? And, and, and it actually, yes, go virtualize. Do you want to spin up a server and play around with something as a right. test? You want Click a server. a couple of buttons and you're you're ready to go. You want a server. You don't need to buy it. You don't need to install it in the back room. And let, listen, unless you have a specific dedicated use case you need it for, and and in which case you know that you do, and you know that what we're saying doesn't apply to you. But other than that, if you need a server, go online. You have one in five minutes. Well, that <laughs> 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 well, I guess that'll do it. That um, I you know, I I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of. Uh, loose threads out there for people we've meandered through quite a few topics um what was it bourbon or whiskey you're drinking which one was it bourbon bourbon i'm sure that bourbon has helped a little bit and, and i've had an extremely long day myself so so uh, hopefully four, hopefully four roses every- single barrel what a four roses single barrel okay is it smooth that's it's even more smooth. important it's very smooth yeah, you don't yeah it's i don't know it's, it's like 30 40 bucks oh that's not bad 
um, was it? There's a uh, there's one I've had my eye on that's like 75, 80 bucks. Oh no, here we've done it. We've drifted. <laughs> so let's go ahead and say bye to the folks and then we can keep talking about alcohol to our heart's content or maybe our heart's malcontent. But okay. other than that, thanks Chris for joining me today. And um, listen, if anybody has loose threads, any questions, um, get in touch with us. We have the comments section at the bottom of every single episode page now. We have our email address, feedback at multinewmedia.com. Um, all sorts of ways to get in touch with us. Just go to multinewmedia.com and you can see all of them. And we will uh, we'll be back next week. Sounds good. Any final words? Until next week. Take care.